2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Second Timothy is an ominous book with a ring of finality. It constitutes the apostle's last dying words. Written from a prison cell, Paul's head is on the chopping block. At the time, Emperor Nero had launched an attack on Christianity and had rounded up all of the leaders of the church. Peter had already been crucified on an upside-down cross. Paul knows that at any moment, he could be next. So in such dire straits, what is Paul's priority? Well, he writes a letter to a friend. As Paul himself awaits a date with the executioner, he pins his final words to his young protege, Timothy. He considered Timothy a spiritual son. Paul loved and mentored and discipled this young man. So here's the picture. Timothy is at home in Ephesus. He's crying out to God in prayer for Paul. While Paul is in Rome praying for Timothy, mindful of his tears, as he says. And Paul's thoughts of Timothy cause him great joy. For what stood out about this young man was his genuine faith. Timothy had been with Paul through many of his journeys. He had listened to Paul's sermons. And he had watched his mentor pastor God's people. And he had even witnessed the miracles that God had worked through Paul. I'm sure the apostles' influence had much to do with the development of young Timothy's genuine faith. But it's interesting to me that Paul himself could see that the young man's faith belonged or began long before Paul entered Timothy's life. For in verse 5, Paul makes the observation that his genuine faith dwelt first in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice. It wasn't an apostle that set the trajectory of Pastor Timothy's life and ministry. It was a grandmother and a mom. In the mid-1800s, the post-Civil War South faced an acute shortage of pastors and Bible teachers. Many of the sons of the South had been lost in the war. One church leader named R.L. Dabney, he recognized the crisis, and he proposed a long-term solution. He said that three things were needed, prayer, education, and mothers. That's right, moms. Dabney knew the key to solving the pastor shortage was moms. For genuine faith is forged in the fire kindled by godly moms and grandmas. He encouraged moms to be involved with their sons in the life of a future pastor. 
in the following ways. He wrote, in childhood, instructing him, in youth, wrestling for his conversion, then toiling to pay expenses for education, then in gray hairs, hearing him preach, then in heaven, beholding him, receiving his crown with many jewels. Dabney suggested that whether a child ends up a minister or not, every mother should raise her son or daughter to be, quote, a promoter of the kingdom of Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul and Pastor Dabney understood the power of a mother to shape the spiritual destiny of her children. Genuine faith is often derived from a mom. A week ago, this past Tuesday, my mother died. She left this world and she went to heaven where she was united with Jesus and reunited with my dad. My dad preceded mom by five months. Dad passed away back in November. My brother and I, we preached mom's funeral in Stockbridge last Saturday. I preached here last Sunday. And then Kathy and I traveled to Florida this past week for a previously arranged speaking trip that I had agreed to. I said all that to say this, it's been a blur. I'm still processing my grief. And quite frankly, today is a strange Mother's Day for me. But I have no doubt that what Paul said of Timothy in verse 5 can also be said of me, that the genuine faith in you dwelt first in your mother, Carol Adams. In fact, whenever people find out that I and my brother both turned out to be pastors, they usually ask if my dad was a pastor, and I assure them, no, dad was a telephone man. But though mom would never claim to be a pastor, no pastor I've ever met was more committed to the Lord than she was. She certainly pastored her boys. She, she mentored two pastors, and she grandmothered a third. And on my first Mother's Day without my mom, I hope you'll indulge me a bit and let me eulogize her life again. The stories I told and the lessons I drew and the memories I savored at my mom's funeral, I'd like to share with you today. My motivation it's partly to help me say goodbye. It's partly to record my thoughts for my kids and my grandkids. But mostly I feel impressed to hold up my mom as an encouragement to all of our moms and grandmas. And let me assure you that what I say today is no exaggeration. Of course, Carol Adams wasn't perfect. But I never remember my mom not wanting to do the right thing. She was a picture of grace and dignity, and godliness. In fact, after the news of my mom's death got out, I received several notes this past week from girls that I hadn't heard from in decades. These were young ladies at the time who attended my childhood church and knew my mom intimately. Emily wrote, I grew up in the same church with Pastor Sandy. I was so sorry to learn about the passing of his mother, Carol. She was a treasured friend and a woman who exemplified Christ in all she said and did. And then from a friend named Judy, Sandy, I put my trust in Jesus Christ because of your mom's testimony and love she had for us kids. Back in the day before youth pastors, your mom loved us and lived an exemplary life before us. She will most assuredly get a well done, you faithful servant, from our Lord. I loved her dearly. 
Proverbs 31 promises the virtuous woman that her husband will praise her and her children will rise up and call her blessed. Today, I intend to fulfill that promise once again. Remember the title of my message this morning, Keeping the Beat and Licking the Beaters. My dad was loud and boisterous and spontaneous. His personality filled the room, whereas mom was our family's metronome. You know, that's the device that keeps the band on beat. She stayed behind the scenes, and she maintained the tempo. She was tick, 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 tick. She was Mrs. Consistent. My relationship with my dad was characterized by big moments, points of decision where he was there to intervene or to express his homespun wisdom. And there were mom moments as well, but more so like a good drummer. Mom just laid down the beat. She was the foundation of the music for our family. She kept us in rhythm. I guess you could say dad played lead, but mom was our heartbeat. And don't get me wrong, mom was far more talented than dad. She could have been the star of the show. But from the day her boys were born, she took a back seat. It was always family first for mom. She lived her life for her family. Carol Adams was the driving influence in my faith. Mom taught me to fear God and to love his word. After she died, I was asked if there was anything I wanted from her room, and I immediately said, her Bible, because it was that Bible from which my faith was formed. I've got her most recent Bible with me this morning. And mom studied this Bible. It was her daily delight, and she made it a habit for her boys the only night of the week she didn't enter our room just before we went to bed to read us a chapter of the Bible was on Wednesdays. That's the night she was at choir practice, and it was up to Dad to read to us on Wednesdays. And Dad always read us the same chapter, Psalm 117. He reminded us it was the shortest chapter in the Bible. It was a duty he wanted to get over with as soon as possible. But Mom really enjoyed her Bible. And mom was exact in her theology. She took God's word seriously. She was a student as well as a teacher. Even to this day, if I have a stack of books on my desk, I make sure the Bible rests on top. I'm not comfortable with any other books stacked above the Bible. That may be silly and a tad superstitious, but it goes back to the reverence and love for God's word that I got from my mom. The seeds of how I view church were also sowed by my mom. Church was important to her, and as a result, it became important to our whole family. She saw to it that we were in church every time the doors opened. We rarely missed. And let me say a word to parents today. Don't expect your children to prioritize church when they get older if you don't prioritize it for them when they're younger. My mom set the example. And mom didn't just go to church, she served the Lord and God's people in multiple ways. Musically, she sang in the choir, and she played the piano and organ. For a time, she was our youth leader. Later in life, mom was beloved by a multitude of ladies who attended the Sunday school class she taught at the church she attended. It's interesting, my mom grew up in church, but it was a church with liberal leanings. And when she married my dad, she became a Baptist. 
And yet she had never really made a commitment of her life to Christ. And like many in people, many people in churches today, for a long time, mom didn't realize what she was missing. Oh, she had joined the church. She even sang in the choir. In fact, she played the organ. But mom knew she wasn't a true Christian. And it was a revi- at a revival hosted by our church that mom kept listening to the pastor ask the question, have you made a personal commitment of your life to Jesus? That night, it dawned on her that despite her church upbringing, she hadn't. And I'll never forget the invitation that evening. Suddenly, I heard the organ stop playing. I looked over to see what had happened to mom. She was gone. At first, I thought the rapture had taken place, and she was the only one that had been snatched up. But then I looked at the altar, and there she was, standing in her choir robe, in the altar, waiting to pray to receive Christ. Boy, it took guts for my mom to do that. Everyone in the room thought she was already a Christian, but she knew different. And for mom to humble herself in that way, it took an authentic and an unashamed commitment to Christ. In fact, the honesty and courage she showed shaped me forever. As was said of Timothy, the genuine faith in my life showed up first in my mom. I'll never forget that night. And she stayed true to her faith and her convictions, regardless of the pressures from inside or outside the church. I recall when the church we attended chose my dad to be a deacon. And you got to understand, this church had some legalistic tendencies. One night, they sent a representative to our house to ask mom a few questions. They had heard that she wore pants to church. My, oh, my. And she wore shorts out and about. The old guy insinuated that was a bit risque for a deacon's wife. Well, I was too young to see exactly how mom handled the situation. But I'm sure she told said Pharisee that Jesus was her Lord, not the deacon board. And she would wear whatever her conscience dictated she should wear. She said it nicely, I'm sure. Mom was always kind and nice. But she could also be firm. I never saw mom alter her wardrobe in response to the old guy's visit. And dad made a deacon, so I assume she stood her ground with both grace and grit. Mom was full of grace and grit. My mom was musical while I was athletic. Mom had no interest whatsoever in sports. And yet she ended up spending more time on a bench at the ballpark than on her piano bench. I played baseball in the spring and football in the fall and basketball in the winter, largely because mom was the one willing to take me to the practices. She signed me up for my first golf lesson, though it obviously did no good. She contacted the basketball coach and took me to a tryout at the middle school to make sure I made the team even before she enrolled me in the school. I'll never forget one summer day. It rained all day long. I became a shut-in. We couldn't go outside to run and jump and play ball. So I asked mom to teach me to play the piano. And oh, was she elated. She was so excited. Her son was suddenly interested in music, her specialty. We had this old upright piano, and she took a pencil, and she wrote the notes on each of the keys, and then she gave me a quick piano lesson. And all day long, I stayed at that bench practicing the piano. My mom would walk down from time to time and just beam looking at me playing the piano. But the next day, the sun came out. 
And the kids down the street wanted to play ball. And after just one day, I ran outside and never returned to that piano bench. And mom never asked me to. She let me follow my interests. See, my mom knew instinctively what our current society has forgotten, that little boys need to run and jump and tussle and roughhouse and play ball. Little boys can't be corralled. You need to steer them, not corral them. There's an art to raising little boys that some moms today don't understand. You have to let little boys be little boys. They're different from little girls. God made gender, and he created men and women unique. Men to be men and women to be women. See, naturally speaking, boys are not as compliant and as compassionate as girls. Their masculine nature is more confrontational and combative. And a mom has to know how to channel those male aggressions toward constructive purposes. If you knew my mom in recent years, you probably couldn't picture her in our backyard with a baseball glove in her hand, throwing me pop-ups and playing catch. But that's what she did. Whenever dad was late coming home from work and I was getting itchy and couldn't wait any longer, mom would grab her glove and we'd go and play. Even as a grandma, she understood how to handle little boys. One night, my dad and three-year-old Zach, they were having a gunfight in the living room, a shootout at the old K Corral. That's right, little boys need to learn to play with toy guns. Well, every time Zach got shot, dad would come over, he'd cut the bullet out, and he'd sew Zach up. Well, mom decided to jump in on the action. Zach got shot, and she hit the floor. Mom bent down, cut the bullet out of his chest, sewed Zach back up. No response from her grandson. He just laid there. Finally, Zach groans, Grandma, there's just one problem. They shot me in the leg. <laughs> Mom loved that story. I think Mom realized that if she was going to mother boys, she'd have to get a little adventurous. I'll never forget our vacation to Panama City Beach when she decided to ride the roller coaster with her son. It was called the Starliner. It started with this long climb, then a 65-foot drop. This was back when the days when hair pieces were fashionable for women, and Mom was wearing hers when she boarded the Starliner. She and I were sitting in the same seat, the front seat, but during that big drop, Mom lost her hair. The wind lifted her hairpiece out of her hair. And I'll never forget at the end of the ride, looking over and seeing mom sitting there holding her hair in her lap. It was a funny sight, and we've laughed about that moment for 50-plus years. And mom had many hair-raising experience with her husband and her boys. Mom couldn't swim. That didn't matter. Every summer, she'd agree to take her vacation to the beach because she knew that her husband and sons loved the water. And often she'd sit on the hotel balcony and read her book while dad and Ken and I played in the ocean. Mom always encouraged my brother and I to pursue our interests and our talents. And she directed us wisely. One Sunday, mom was leading the youth choir at church, of which I was a member. And she kept instructing the choir to sing louder. She kept pleading, louder, louder, louder. And of course, each time she did, I obeyed. I sang louder. 
Well, that night on the way home from church, mom tried to gently bring up the subject. She said, you know, Sandy, whenever I tell the choir to sing louder, you should realize I'm speaking to everyone but you. You just keep singing at the same volume, son. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I knew what she was saying. My own mom was telling me that I couldn't sing. That was my last night in the youth choir. And the funny thing is, mom never tried to talk me out of my resignation. It took years, but I eventually got over my hurt feelings. It happened at Calvary Chapel's first Christmas Eve service. Back in those days, such services were not as popular in the South as they are now, but my newlywed wife had experienced them in Florida, where she was from, and she thought we had to have one here, and so we did. And Kathy also understood that every Christmas Eve service needs a piano, but we didn't have a piano, and so she prayed for one. And believe it or not, a week before Christmas that year, I got a call from out of the blue for someone who wanted to donate to us a piano. Of course, we needed a piano player to play that piano. And that was a no-brainer. I pushed aside my hurt feelings from years past, and I said, let's call mom. And my mom played the piano at the first Christmas Eve service in the history of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. My mom had the logical and practical mind in our family. Dad was spontaneous and emotional, but mom was strategic. She thought things through. Before making a decision, mom would examine all of the angles. For most of their lives, mom and dad never attended a church pastored by their sons. They didn't want to go to one son's church and make the other son feel slighted. But toward the end of their life, circumstances evolved where mom and dad started attending Calvary Chapel. I was so excited after they had started coming. They were now listening to their oldest son preach. One day I called mom and I asked her how she was liking the church. And of course, I expected mom to rave about the teaching, how much she was getting out of my Bible studies and all. Instead, she told me, she said, well, it's just 35 steps from the handicapped spot to our seats and it's one level. And so that works for us. (laughs) That was it. I expected some kind of emotional or spiritual reason. Instead, she liked that we're on a slab. (laughs) Mom not only taught me to respect God and the Bible, but long before the days of feminism, she also taught me to respect women. She was the only woman in a family of three males, and so she stressed the idea that girls were special. And unlike boys, you treated a girl with kid gloves. That's why I couldn't believe my friend Becky betraying me. She was our back door neighbor. And there Becky was on the back porch telling my mom that I had hit her. Now understand, in our family, hitting a girl was the unpardonable sin. Again, boys respected girls. I can't really remember now whether I actually hit Becky or not, but mom took her word for it. After all, she was a girl. Girls always tell the truth. So my mom made me stand there with my hands clasped behind my back while she instructed Becky to rear back and slap me right across the face as hard as she could. 55 years later, it still stings, but I've never hit a girl since. And this is why I've never balked at the biblical teachings on gender roles. You know, 1 Peter 3 verse 7 declares, 
Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wife with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. See, my dad treated my mom as a weaker vessel in the way he handled an expensive watch. More fragile didn't mean less value. It meant honor and a higher appraisal, even deserving of the utmost care. My mom and girls in general were viewed in our home as special and more valuable than other males. I've always read the Bible's teachings on gender roles up against the backdrop of an honored mom whose husband would lasso the moon and lay it at her feet if that's what she wanted. In turn, my mom leaned on my dad to be the head of our home. She trusted him to lead. She wanted him to lead. Mom supported my dad in his manhood. She loved being married to a man who acted like a man. She never challenged or undermined his masculinity. And she turned two boys into men using the same strategy. Mom believed that in being submissive to her husband, it was important. But she saw submission not as capitulation, but as a tool to help her husband be all that God intended for him to be. My dad became a much better man because of my mom. She knew what it took to build a good marriage, not a competition of the sexes, but a cooperation of the sexes. And every time I write my name, I'm reminded of how my dad and my mom functioned. Mom was the one who named me Sandy. See, dad wanted a junior. He wanted his son to be named Olin Sanford Adams Jr. But mom hated the name Olin. And she didn't want to stick that on her son. It was enough to be married to one. And so, as is often the case in a good marriage, a compromise was struck. Mom agreed to Olin Jr. as long as they could call me something else. And since all you can get out of Olin Sanford Adams Jr. is Sandy, that was it. Mom honored her husband, and she saved her son both at the same time. That was how mom rolled. I was Sandy from day one. When we were young, mom stayed home to raise her boys. But when we got older, she went to work to help pay for those boys. Ironically, I got my mom her first job outside our home, whereas she got me one of my first jobs. I attended kindergarten down the street from our house, and one day the teacher asked the students if anyone's mother could play the piano. My hand shot up. Mine can. Mom ended up playing that year for the graduation exercises, and then she went to work the following year teaching music. Fast forward a decade and mom got me one of my first jobs, mowing grass for the real estate developer she had gone to work for as a secretary and office manager. And mom became the super secretary. She was organized and prompt and efficient and attentive to details. She got rave reviews in every job that she ever had. Her longest stint was a job with Cigna Insurance where she rose to the level of executive secretary. As we're told in the scriptures, Everything mom did, she did heartily as unto the Lord. And mom was also a good friend. She was not only loved by the ladies she taught in Sunday school, she had a circle of friends from work that she met frequently with, even after their retirement. They loved to gather for long luncheons. She would have loved to come to the Calvary Chapel Women's Friendship Tea. That kind of thing was right up her alley. 
Mom befriended her neighbors in the subdivision. She had friends here at Calvary Chapel. Even the last few months of her life, she took an interest in a lady at the assisted living home where we had to put her. This lady was lonely and in need of a friend, and Mom came to her side. Let me just sum it up. Carol Adams was a strong woman. Her marriage lasted 68 years, and if you knew my dad, that was not without its trials. She built a home that nurtured two little boys who became pastors. And though the verdict is still out, so far they've done okay. My mom had a career in the workplace where she rose in her profession. And she still managed to use her gifts of music and teaching to serve the Lord and spread his word. In every arena, mom loved people and people loved her. And in my opinion, that's the life of a liberated woman that any feminist could be proud of. There's one thing my mom would never do, and that was to show favoritism toward one of her children over the other. A big point she always made was to say that she loved Ken and I equally, and that's also how she treated her grandkids. At Christmas, she'd give everybody checks of an equal amount, not a dime's difference in the checks. Who knows? She may have had her favorites, but she never did anything or said anything that tipped her hand. Carol Adams was a great mom and grandma by every measurement. In fact, here's a short video that my brother did with mom, one Mother's Day special that he did at his church. I, I hope you'll enjoy it. It's short. All right, mom, how long have you been a mother? 63 wonderful years. 63 wonderful years. And how many children do you have? Two. You got two? Two boys, right? Right. And so, uh, so, you know, as a mother, uh, you've had a lot of happy Mother's Days, but what is the one thing or some of the things that you really think a mother wants to hear somebody say on Mother's Day? Oh, I think she would love to hear her children say, I love you. And um, is there anything I can do to help you? And... Here, Mom, I've got a thousand dollars I'm going to give you. <laughs> and so that would be great to hear. <laughs> and so uh, from your perspective, which of your children is your favorite? Oh, I, favorite don't, child? I don't have a favorite. I don't have a favorite. I love them both the same. Are you serious? Sure. You sure you don't have a favorite? Don't have a favorite. I know my son would love I know that you'd love to hear something different, but uh, no, don't have a favorite. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Oh, anytime. Some of our family were talking the other day, and we agreed the one thing that mom didn't handle well was old age. She never could embrace getting older. She was such a classy lady. She was a Southern belle. Whenever she left the house, she always had to look her best. She had a grace and a decorum about her. She never got used to the limitations of old age or adapted to them. And one reason was her arthritis. It kept her in constant pain. She complained at times, but I always felt it was far worse than she was letting on. Eventually, mom became immobile, and it became a vicious, vicious cycle. She needed to exercise to regain her flexibility, but exercise was difficult because of the pain. And looking back on it, my dad may have extended her life a few years because he constantly harped on her to eat her food and make sure she was taking enough fluids. 
When dad died last November and was no longer around to prod, she started losing weight and strength. Mom was a good sport about it, though, and she gave life without her husband and in new surroundings a hearty try. But in the end, she was a creature of habit, and she missed my dad. And when mom went into the hospital on April the 14th, she told my brother and sister-in-law that it would be fine with her if she never came out. My mom was ready for heaven. In fact, I was sitting by her bedside the day before she died, and I watched her. This once proud lady, now just a bag of bones, thrashing about in the bed, obviously uncomfortable and in pain. And for a moment, the brutal reality of this fallen, sin-stained world hit me hard. And I was thinking, here is a woman who's done all the right things in life. She's loved one man 68 years. She gave her all to her family and her marriage She served the Lord and his people and loved his word. And now here she is. It's just pitiful. Is this how it all ends? And at that moment, boy, God spoke to my heart clearly. He said, Sandy, this is not her end. You see, in the struggle of this life, I wasn't looking far enough ahead. And this is often our problem. For mom's death and your death will not be your end. The Lord is waiting on the other shore. And if you've lived in rebellion, your destiny will be a fiery and painful and ominous outcome. But if you trust it in Jesus, he'll meet you with open arms. Jesus has glories in store for my mom. Today, all her dreams have come true. She has received rewards and blessings she could have never imagined. What I mistook for the end was for God and my mom, just a new beginning. Proverbs 31, verses 25 through 30, is a description of the virtuous woman and words that I believe apply to my mom. It says, strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. And that's what I've tried to do today. I hope to praise all the moms who are doing it right. Again, the title of my message this morning, Keeping the Beat and Licking the Beaters. Now you know how my mom helped our family keep the beat and stay in rhythm. But what about those beaters? What in the world is that? Well, Carol Adams had a sweet tooth. It's where I got mine. She loved Southern divinity, and she made this mashed potato candy that was out of this world. There really is such a thing as mashed potato candy. You need to ask Kathy for the recipe. And I have a memory of my mom that I'll always treasure. Whenever she cooked anything with an electric mixer, particularly the frosting on a cake, she'd always remove the beaters after she was done, still whipped up with frosting, and she'd leave them on the counter for Ken and I to lick. Oh, how I looked forward to licking those beaters. I think that's how she cleaned them. (laughs) And that's how I now feel about my mother's life. 
She made sure our upbringing and her influence was full of sweet memories. She cooked up a life for us of kindness and sweetness. Mom put plenty of frosting on the cake. And she's now left me beaters full of sweet memories that I'll be savoring and enjoying for years to come. This is my prayer for every mom here today, that you'll leave your kids sweet memories so that one day they'll write, as Paul did, I am filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. May every mother and grandmother here today be like Timothy's and help plant within the heart of their children a genuine faith.